but also now your hip flexors are starting to extend. And if they don't have the necessary range of motion, they cannot extend sufficiently for them to load. And if they don't load, then bringing your knee back for resetting your foot is now no longer a elastic return. It's not a reactive movement. It's a proactive movement and you literally have to pick up your feet. It's the reason why old folks stumble and fall. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, what's going on? Good to see you again. It's been a while. I have uh, I miss my, my regular Matt Pandola fixes, right? Uh, my year man fixes. And uh, I think it's been over three weeks now that we haven't seen each other. So uh, hope you're doing well. Good to see your face. Yeah, good to see you too. That's one of the things I, I love about doing the podcast with you. I was telling that to uh, one of my good friends. I get to talk to Bobby about the thing I love the most every Wednesday. I always really look forward to it. Yeah, I have my Ben Canute hat on today, by the way, because a little bit of honor of his performance, what he did over in Ibiza. And uh, that's something that I think would be cool to talk about, just his mindset going into a race like that. For those of you that don't know, they had the best triathletes in the world there, including three Olympic gold medalists that were duking it out. So being inside of the top 10 is just absolutely amazing results. Ben was eighth overall and really showed up on the day and controlled what he could control. But interestingly enough, just before the race during a shakeout run he did have a little bit of a mishap had a fall and his knee did blow up a little bit so i thought it'd be kind of cool just talking today a little bit at first before we roll into our conversation about the hips just that mindset and how things do happen on the day you do all of this hard training and before you know it something goes wrong and probably something will always go wrong and I feel like how we deal with that has such an important result for our big days and the things that we're working so hard for and I thought with Ben that was a great example of him having something happen there but still just deciding I'm going to control what I can control I'm going to focus on what I can do and I think that he really had a phenomenal day regardless of what happened with his knee beforehand. Yeah, yeah. The exciting stuff is has been starting to, no, not even starting, is now continuing this breakthrough where even if he has a bad patch on the bike, like he had a bad patch early on, he's coming back strong. And the big thing with Ben is, is he's starting to back end his run. His second half of his run, he's starting to find it on a consistent basis. And, and, and I think that's, doing a lot of good, you know, duking it out between eight and nine over the last couple of kilometers. I think that's pretty exciting. And, you know, as you said, it was a big race. It was a PTO European championship. It was a, a big prize purse. It was, it's getting excited. I love this 100K distance. I think it's perfect. You know, just the time frame, the ability to watch it, the, it's more dynamic, but it's still long course racing. So it's, it's really exciting. So run form came in beautifully here, right? So luckily with the time zones and stuff like that, uh, Ben was able to communicate with us, like stepped off the pavement, turned his ankle over, and then an ended up hitting his landing on his kneecap, right? So there was a little bit of a contusion there, stuff like that. Ben quickly said, look, the ankle's achy, but I've got swimmer's ankles, you know, which, which Pendola and McGee have been working really hard to negate his swimmer's ankles, right? To make them more stiff, um, but he also felt his ankle would recover really quickly. And, and he just had tight on the knee going up and down stairs, just encouraging him, just following the usual pathways, explaining to him the mechanisms of why it feels tight. There's functionally nothing wrong. He just has to uh, come a, overcome a little resistance with the swelling. These are the things you should do, you know. Um, and of course, it all turned out really well. But I think the big message there was there were three people listening straight away. Ben's coach, Jim Vance, yourself and myself, and we all jumped on the wagon and were giving advice and, and encouragement and, and support. And then Ben afterwards saying, you know, it was really, really great to have my team on it so quickly, even though he's over in Spain and, and, and you know, we over here in the States. It's just amazing how the modern 
athlete, what they have to deal with and how they perform, you know, coaches and team can't always travel with them and that kind of thing. So exciting stuff to understand Ben's body from that perspective and then to be able to give insight that's valuable and effective. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I do have to give a little bit of a shout out to WhatsApp because it comes in so handy with uh, situations like this. I'm doing a last minute video just on getting some maybe synovial fluid release in that knee uh, first thing in the morning, getting that ankle working. And so I knew I could give him just a couple quick drills to do. I knew he would get up stiff in the morning and have to go race. So having that opportunity to do that was was really phenomenal. But also with somebody like Ben, just I was so impressed with how he was able to just really get focused on what he could control on the day and not thinking about how his knee may be holding him back. I didn't see any of that. And I know after talking to him, he didn't even think that way, which is, that's the point, right? That's that's what's so, I think, um, solid about a performance like that is I'm able to deal with what's being thrown at me. And I know I have not dealt with that so well myself in the past when I had situations come up that I didn't plan for. So I just think that's that's so important to talk about that we do need to mentally prepare as much as we are physically preparing. We should be getting ourselves graduated to those circumstances that can come up on the day and be ready for that. Yep, yep. There's beautiful psychological lessons here too, right? So one of the primary tools of a sports psychologist is looking at the athlete's locus of control. Are they extrinsically trying to control that? In other words, was Ben getting into all the whys of why he fell and the fact that he had bad luck and that it was like a really nasty situation to happen to him at this and why does it always happen to him? He didn't go any of those places. That's called an external locus of control. He immediately went internal. Internal locus of control, what can I do? What can I handle? What do I need to do? And that's that's a, a, a really, really good lesson because people need to realize that the physical consequences of a, of a fall like that are actually, if, if nothing's been badly damaged, are actually the minor part of the conversation. The major part of the conversation is the emotional uh, thing because, you know, the athlete's going from an adrenaline-based conversation to a cortisol-based con- conversation, right? Starts being concerned. The athlete adrenalizes, starts worrying about the impacts going to have on his, on his pocketbook and on his result and on his performance. And all those things sort of come up. And those things need to be diffused, not ignored, not shoved aside. Then you, they need attention, but they need rational therapy, right? They need rational emotive therapy. This is what happened. It's all that happened. What do we have to do now? Let's put all of our attention on the process going forward, you know, because there's all sorts of hormonal and blood changes that take place when you have a fall like that, you know, because of the emotion, because of the feelings all that sort of stuff. And and so athletes that distinguish that that chain of events is going to occur have already massively minimized that chain of events. And then as you said, you always got to, in your race rehearsal, you know, when you're visualizing and you're going through the race, you've got to include working your way through tough stuff. All right, what happens if this happens? What happens if I got a flat? I think in that particular race, uh, there was another case where an athlete team or the officials actually realized that one of the athletes had a flat tire. They sorted that out for him. It's it's just that's uh, the great thing about these sports. So, you know, decathlon, triathlon, they're such hard sports that a lot of the athletes actually like work together all around the race. And then it's then it's mano a mano in the race itself. But you know, assisting each other, lending bikes and pumps and all sorts of stuff. It's a wonderful sport in, in that regard. You know, I think that's why we were so shocked by the recent news of, of the cheating because it's it's normally a, a such a brilliant community. Yeah, and I think, you know, focusing on what it is that you said before, I think, with injury versus is this a knee injury, for example, and is this something that we think could do more harm than good or, or have damage to the athlete? We didn't feel that way about his fall. So that is important to note that I don't think you necessarily should race no matter what, but 
as long as it was a situation we felt like we could do safely and effectively, then we're going to do it. And uh, yeah, on on the day it worked out, and I was really proud of Ben for that. And yeah, the overall culture, the community in triathlon is just amazing. So I believe that athlete only ended up losing 15 seconds in transition where it could have been the end of his race. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Just just before we step on to uh, this, this week's uh, podcast subject, I want to say you brought up something really, really important there. You determine whether there's going to be more damage done and whether you're going to damage the rest of the season if you go forward after an incident like that. And I think that's critical. The big lesson, of course, is that when you're training and you always, you know, you go into a period of a week, five days, where you're going, I got a little bit of a niggle, it goes away when I run for two or three miles, but then it's back again the next day. That's the kind of thing you shouldn't be doing, right? So I think that that's it's a good lesson right there. Absolutely, yeah. Always, always learning lessons. I've learned the hard way too. So <laughs> you know, learn from the experience of others, and and I I certainly do feel like the toughness that's involved with athletes and the competitiveness, the drive, all those things are so important. But sometimes we can get in our own way, so we we have to we have to look at this in the both short term and long term approach of what's best for us, right? So, yeah. Um, and then today we're going to be talking more about the hip function. And if you've been listening to our prior podcast, you'll know we're just going right up the chain. So if you happen to have dived right into this podcast, of course, I think it's a great listen. But I would encourage everybody to go back to the start and really learn how this works all the way up our chain kinetically. Yeah, and of course, because uh, our stock in trade is kinematics, right? We work with how humans move when they run, when they bike, when they swim. Uh, some of some of our examples, which will be verbal, we're both sitting on, on our various sides of the screen using our hands and stuff. Uh, just know that you can always go to our YouTube channel at Pendola Project. Uh, when you hear something that's a little complex and you need more of a visual, you'll be able to get that there. Yeah, I know I certainly respond better to visuals. So that's why we wanted to do that on the podcast as well. Give people the chance, the opportunity to see to see the visuals too. But uh, when it comes to the hip, it is kind of a complex subject. The hip is... Uh, such a powerhouse overall for our overall performance. And it, well, I was saying this before the podcast, it really took me a while to understand exactly what you were looking for in a runner's gait. Because quite honestly, again, a lot of it was not what I was actually uh, taught. In fact, some of the cues were are now in reverse. I had to relearn some of these concepts. And so I thought it would be good to to dive into that today and have us give a little bit more detail and explanation about what the hip function actually is during the running gait. And then I think it would connect the dots better for you as a runner to understand why we're working out. Absolutely. So let's just start off right away with a description of, of what what is the pelvis doing uh, while we run, right? And uh, mostly it's all about it being a platform off of which the running occurs, right? And we know that the more stable that platform is, the more uh, force needs to be applied downwards. Um, we don't want that platform giving away upwards, right? And, you know, as a basic start to anatomy is this realization that muscles cannot push. So to stabilize the pelvis, it's really like a suspension bridge. You've got cables of connective tissue and muscle and tendons and ligaments working in opposition with each other to keep the pelvis down on the side that the leg is on the ground so that that leg can stiffen against the ground. You know, again, if the if the pelvis is unstable because, you know, of the core uh, function, then it's like trying to bounce a basketball that doesn't have enough air in it, right? So it gets like real soggy and you have to use more force to be run, run effectively. So, You've heard me often say when I'm watching a runner run, I'm saying, no, he's sticky or she's sticky. Why, I, why are they staying on the ground so long? And then when you do an assessment peripherally, you look at your ankle, you, you look at their ankle or you look at their arch or you look at their knee. You're saying, no, there's lots of leg spring stiffness there. They can hop, they can rope jump. 
why are they sticky? And it's always back back up there in the pelvis. And then last global, before we just describe what, what does the pelvis do while you run, um, is the fact that you want to view the pelvis three-dimensionally. So if you can go online and have a look at what the pelvis looks like from inside the belly downwards, that makes a huge difference, right? Because it's really hard for somebody to visualize how does my pelvis function if I'm looking down at it, you're always seeing the front of it, right? And and that it's a very, very three-dimensional joint, right? Unlike the knee and the ankle that are far more linear in, in how they function, they do have some lateral um, movement, but not nearly as much lateral movement as, as the pelvis has and, and as the hips have, right? So I, I always start the conversation off by saying, imagine that your pelvis is a bucket, and that your your rib cage is an upside down bucket, and all you've got connecting them is that wet noodle of a spinal cord. Everything else doesn't have structure or integrity. There's no bone underneath the skin. There's no bone through the middle, right? There's just this articulating spine, and then this skirt, this sheath of muscle. But so that people realize that muscle is not just along the outside. The muscle is also in the middle. Those, those unseen muscles that you can't palpate and that you can't see and that you can't really feel that you're using them, right? It requires a lot of uh, perceptual awareness to do that. And muscles like the quadratus lumborum or the QL and muscles like the psoas, spelled P-S-O-A-S if you're looking for it, the iliopsoas, right? Um, so, the, you know, just getting a vision of that. I saw a, a, a cadaver the other day, a cadaver photograph, or actually a cadaver video, um, of the ligaments and, and fascia around the hip socket. And it's fascinating. It's like stuck in there with gum right all around it. It's really, really in there. And you can see why when you need to have surgery on your hip, it's so easy to impair the structure, structural integrity of that hip because in running, the hip needs to be tight in there, all right? It can't be moving outwards every time you put your foot down, you know? So that whole thing of trying to stretch your IT band, which is a waste of time anyway, and, uh, you know, trying to loosen up your hip and mobilize your hips in, in a way that is passive actually destabilizes that hip, allows too much movement in that hip joint, which is fatal in running because you've got all those little bursts around there that get impacted. So maybe you want to just say something there quick, Matt, before I just go to uh, how it functions in the run. Yeah, I think one of the things that I actually think about while you're talking is the perception the athlete has. When I first do, say, an assessment, I did one with an ultra runner actually just the other day. And you know he's certainly got a lot of experience as a runner and as even uh, his education was around um, kinesiology, he knows and understands the concepts, but to clue in what it is that that deep pelvic bowl really needs to be doing, I would draw a line between the top of your hips and think about how we're going to the bottom of that pelvic bowl. We're trying to narrow that upside down pyramid, if you would. And that's just a little cue that I think about when I'm trying to do something like, let's say, a Copenhagen that I've talked a lot about before, how good it is to really work on the groin muscles, the adductor muscles that uh, allow you to be able to control that position a little bit more, but also because it is a deep pore activator. And so a drill like that is going to be so important to start feeling what that hip can do in that more narrowed position. And so that is what we want to be able to get while we are in sync with our gait. And that's not something, again, that we can think about at the time. That's why I think doing drills like the Copenhagen or exercise like that can be so important for us as runners so we can start to cognitively think about that and, again, graduate those steps a little bit more towards what your response is going to be while you're in that run. Yep, yep. You know, I think if you, again, that three-dimensional picture, right? So you look look at your abdominals, which are sometimes considered as by people as your only core muscles, but there's so, so much more to the core, right? And, and you and I talk a lot about that. 
But but if you look at your abdominals, those muscles that create abduction, those muscles that create adduction, you know, you think, okay, why why are those muscles important, right? So the the abdominal muscles and the 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 lumbar musculature, right, as well as the internal musculature, their job is to keep the chest on top of the pelvis so that when you do elastically release and you do drive forward, that, you know, that chest is not falling offline and you have these power leakages coming either out the top of your SI joint or out of your hips or out of the front of your pelvis, right? So you've got to have your chest on top of your pelvis, which is, which is governing the drive line. And then the adductors and abductors, they try to get your knee, keeping your knee moving forward. So they're stabilizing that knee going forward. Often middle distance runners or even, you know, higher end distance runners that can run considerably faster than their easy pace will complain about groin soreness when they do their first speed workout. And the reason why that is, is that as your knee comes through, centrifugal force is trying to throw your knee outwards. Right, is try to externally rotate your thigh, and all those little groin muscles have to work at keeping that knee inwards, and they get overworked, and that's often why when you do speed work, it's because they've been fighting to keep your knees straight. And and similarly, if you have dysfunction in your knees or dysfunction in your ankles, like you know overpronation or or antiversion or or something like that, or you externally rotating your feet, it's putting more stress on those pelvic muscles that are not prime movers in the running gait. Yeah, and I think another thought I had, because I do talk about movements like the Copenhagen a lot, but I wanted to be sure I at least cover in run form, we have dynamic mobility drills and we have a lot of drills on single leg where you actually do have to get both that internal and external range through the hip, through the movements. And in our banded dynamics, we start with just learning how to really properly hinge the hips, right? So as you are folding those hips and as you are hinging, you're getting that internal rotation. And that is the response we want. We're getting that on your feet to get back through that position to a standing position. Now that's when you're getting more of that external rotation all while kicking in good co-contraction between the muscles that need to help to stabilize and center that hip. So I just wanted to point that out is that we do believe that we have graduation in these movements that you can really learn as an athlete. And that's, I refer to it a lot of times as athlete anchors. So that's, you know, again, an important part in the program because people do feel very vulnerable when they just start off with something like a Copenhagen. And uh, I get a question like that often is, if, if you love the Copenhagen so much, uh, why am I starting with a hip hinge in the series? Well, because we do want to look at that pattern matching and, and recognizing those feelings and building into things like your Copenhagens in your base uh, training and your phases, which, which may come later. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, I, as you speak, I'm doing what I used to do in my kinesiology exams when I was at university. I'm popping right out of my chair and I'm going, uh, let me, let me, let me feel how that works. Let me, let me visualize how that works. It brings me to that, that first law of mechanics, right? Don't trust what you feel. Trust what the camera shows, right? So that's, uh, that's so important. You think you're doing it, you hip hinging correctly, and then you look at the video and you go, oh no, there's some instability there. There's this, that's that, the other, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, again, talking about the drills that we chose to look at teaching athletes in the beginning, I, I know we happen to have a lot of new athletes that are going through the run form program right now. And I'm doing a lot of, I guess you would call it uh, customer service follow-up and I'm getting really good feedback. But one of the things that we do talk about a lot is we have these drills so that you can do them just about anywhere. But with the banded dynamics, especially, are you doing this in front of a camera or in other, other words, having somebody film you doing them, but even when possible in front of a mirror. So you can start to recognize those patterns, see what's going on, really get that pattern down. And then you start to slowly feel it more and more to the point where maybe you can even do some of these things with your eyes closed, which is the mastery steps, right? So yes, yes. Just because that vision is so important. If you take the vision away, it really exposes you, right? 
you know, so when athletes are learning drills for the first time, they often look down, right? They want visual confirmation that they're doing the right thing. And that, of course, sets, sets off the whole postural chain, puts it out of balance because your head weighs so much, right? Weeks ago, we talk, spoke about the, you know, considering the various weights of the body parts, right? And uh, your head's a pretty heavy puppy. And if you throw your head forward, if you throw your head back, it definitely impacts your center of mass from a, a you know, from a significant point of view. The other thing I want to just touch on there is, again, is, is that um, that muscles pull uh, from the insertion side, not from the origin side. I think a lot of people think that muscles will pull from the origin side. So if you think about, you know, how you use your hip flexors to set your knee in front, right? Uh, and it's more a guiding thing than it is a, a movement thing. Um, people need to know that if your pelvis isn't stable and you fire your rectus femoris, which is your, your middle quad muscle, it pulls your pelvis down, you know? And so it anteriorly rotates your pelvis. Similarly with your hamstrings, you know, they will posterior rotate your pelvis if your, if your platform isn't stable from your core, you know? So having that neutral pelvis doesn't mean to say that the bucket is upright, the bucket's leaning slightly forward, right? But it's all connected up the chain. So that's important. Yeah. So when it comes to the right, sorry, I was going to say, Bobby, uh, just to give a visual, I know this kind of clues in on, I've taught this at camps before. If you look at origins insertions as being a door and you have that insertion where you have that doorknob and you're going to pull uh, turn that doorknob and you're going to pull the door and it swings very uh, smoothly and evenly off of those hinges, right? And the the hinges are going to be that origin. So with really good established hinges, you're able to get better attachments, in other words, and with a, a better uh, established overall insertion origin trained to do that it does it very well it does its job nice and smoothly you can open that door smoothly every time and so you know use that kind of visual in your mind to understand how this pulling does work. oh it's a brilliant analogy i love that i love that so the handle is the insertion the hinges are the origin it makes complete sense yeah that's uh it's a great one i will steal that from you man <laughs> yeah so in the running gait cycle, you know, in terms of the pelvis, uh, you've got to kind of think contralaterally. So if your right elbow's coming forward, right, then your left knee's coming forward. And if your left knee's coming forward, your left hip's coming forward. Now it's much, much more subtle than that, right? That's why we take those videos of runners when we're doing a run analysis from the top, right? So we, from the top down, we're looking at them. And we know if that if that right shoulder is moving forward, then we know that left hip should be moving forward as well, right? Uh, and it's really hard to find a starting point, you know, in the gait cycle that makes sense to to most people. But I think ground contact is a good place to go, right? So if you if your heel or your midfoot's coming into the ground, right, that hip is leading slightly. It's rotated a little bit on the axis of the of the lumbar spine, right? But also key to that, good runners are pushing that foot down. So what's happening to the pelvis is the, the leg that's going to hit the ground, that side of the pelvis is pushing down because instantly that the, the athlete starts to bear weight, no matter how strong they are, no matter how powerful they are, that opposite hip starts to drop. And if they go in in neutral and they've got prolonged ground contact time and you add to that they don't have a lot of power, in their hip musculature, they're going to drop that opposite hip so much that it's actually going to cause the knee to move across to the opposite knee. And now it's creating lateral forces. And that's sometimes why people can't get to their uh, second metatarsal and their first metatarsal because they're so far out on the, on the fifth and the fourth metatarsal because their pelvis is unstable, right? So it's that proactive pushing your foot down that actually drops the pelvis on that active side so that when you come through mid-stance, the pelvis hasn't dropped so much that it starts to create lateral deviation, yeah. all right? So then you know, the pelvis is holding on to that glute and to that quad, right? So now it's important that there's balance there, right? And it doesn't get pushed back up and so that the pelvis is staying down so that you know, you're able to load that. So first gather the impact, 
hold it steady through mid stance, and mid stance is all about glute. It's all about glute, you know. Um, so that such a primary component of the pelvis is the glute max, right? And and we the glute max doesn't get enough attention, right? So you often see in older male uh, triathletes. Uh, even in female triathletes, that they lose that glute max. They become more and more dependent upon their quad just because they don't have that necessary range of motion to be able to exercise and condition the glutes. And so they lose access to all of that beauty. And in the world of sprinting, the primary muscle is the glute. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the primary muscle. And then through mid-stance, what's happening in the pelvis uh, as you start to extend, you're obviously holding stable because you don't want to lose vertical height, right? You're trying to minimize your vertical oscillation. But also now your hip flexors are starting to extend. And if they don't have the necessary um, range of motion, they cannot extend sufficiently for them to load. And if they don't load, then bringing your knee back for resetting your foot is now no longer a elastic return. It's not a reactive movement. It's a proactive movement, and you literally have to pick up your feet. It's the reason why old folks stumble and fall, right? Because they, they're not loading those hip flexors, so the knee is not snapping back, right? So what is, what is the role in a contractile fashion with those hip flexors? It's just setting the knee. It's guiding the knee, but the knee's coming back because you've loaded those hip flexors elastically like a big old piece of carbon fiber, a flat piece of carbon fiber where you're pulling the knee back and then that knee is bouncing back through again. Yeah. And so as you toe off, it's all about stability. It's all about having those hip flexors loading fully so that the knee can come back. At that point in time, it's the elastic return from the knee and uh, the, the, the lower triple springs, from the knee, the arch, the Achilles, you know, the ankle. Yeah, and you look at some variables there because you – you talked about a concept I think I want to touch on a little bit more for people to understand about beating gravity down. And mm -hmm. that is allowing that knee, that opposite knee to get set up without overusing your hip flexors. And in distance running, especially the hip flexor that connects from the hip to the knee in particular, and also extends the knee, that is, it's called your rectus femoris, but that muscle tends to be really restricted, uh, tight, if you will, on a lot of endurance athletes. And we're, we're simply overusing that muscle. And that happens a lot of times when we're under fatigue as well. We start to look at how our position changes because dynamic trunk control is such an important concept. That's why really in every exercise we do, you could really break it down to some form of dynamic trunk control for the runner. And when we start to lose that control, then we start to overuse other muscles like our hip flexors, like our rectus femoris in this case. So the concept about beating gravity down, that saves you so much energy, but also it's now going to be a better windup for you. So that free energy is coming more naturally and cadence, right? When we are talking about cadence, the, at least Bobby, the problem I feel like I've been seeing again with an ultra runner, like I was talking about before, is how they are oftentimes trying to pick up their cadence, but they're just doing it really, they're doing sort of choppy patterns and just trying to increase their RPMs. Say, right? I'm Italian, I'm like here sitting there uh, moving my hands back and forth. But, <laughs> You know, that becomes very choppy and then that's not the actual, they're not getting the response that they should be getting because their hips out of position. And uh, that's, you know, me personally, that's why I'm not as into doing these type of drills that are very popular where you're just trying to get your cadence to match up with like a metronome or something like that, but it's not natural for you. So you start to change your hip position. Yeah, you are hitting higher numbers with your cadence, but is it translating to free energy? And I don't think it is oftentimes. Would you agree with that, Bobby? Yeah, ab absolutely. No, I definitely, definitely hear what you're saying there. So that beating gravity concept that I, I always talk about is, is there's twofold benefits from that approach, right? Is one, it's the anti-reach drill, right? So your job is to get your foot 
down so that you don't reach. Because if you reach, now you have a mechanical deficiency, right? Your shin angle is going to come down and so on and so forth. It's also going against the float, right? So you've got your, your high school quarterback doing his annual mile run, right? He's all about pushing off the ground and then letting gravity bring him down. It's got the super long stride length. You've got the super low cadence, right? Um, so by beating gravity down, you are actively stiffening your leg against the ground. Everything in your system. It's the simplest little drill that you show people, right? You say, you set them up for failure. You say, I want you to do a high knee drill. Get those knees up, right? And they are uncomfortable. They're uncoordinated. Their posture's off. They're going backwards. And no matter how hard they try, they can't do it fast. But the minute you say, I want you to do exactly the same drill, but your focus is on pushing down, driving your knees down, then the knee comes up automatically. Every coach worth his soul knows that if his athlete's knees aren't clearing and setting properly, the answer is push down harder. That's the way you get your knees set. You know, the opposite knee will automatically come up if you push down, right? So beating gravity, those two parts, stiffen your leg, right? and reduce the chance or the opportunity or the time for your body to drop down into the ground. If you wait for gravity to bring you down to the ground, you are, again, a basketball with no air. But if you drive that well-inflated basketball down to the ground, you're going to get a lot of return from it. And that, that's the whole nature of that. I think it's a good place to just let people know, especially the triathletes, right? You've been swimming. That's concentric muscle contraction, right? So the muscles are shortening your pecs, your lats. Everything is shortening to power you through the water. Then you jump on the bike, you know, you're using your glutes, you're using your quads. Everything is shortening to push those pedals down, right? And then suddenly when you get into the run, the loading requires that eccentric contraction. So when you hit the ground, your quads are getting longer. When you drop your heel down, your soleus and your gastroc are getting longer, all right? And when you're coming off the ground, your hip flexor is getting longer. Everything's getting longer, but it's loaded, all right? And so when people start to understand that even, even race walking is so complete, completely different to running, right? Because race walking is a strength event, whereas, whereas running is a power event. It's a spring release event, right? Um, so very, very cool to start recognizing within yourself as a runner, whether that's off the bike or just a plain runner, is that your, that your jobs are clear and they are very counter- intuitive. Oh, I've got to push my leg down. I don't want to reach. I don't want a longer stride in front. I want a longer stride out the back. And how do I get a longer stride out the back? I hurry my damn foot down to the ground so that my center of mass that's moving forward gets dragged even further forward because I've driven my foot to a static ground and the ground is pulling my leg backwards. Now it's loading my hip flexor. Boom, my leg's going to come back on its own. Yeah. And we, and there's so many drills that I have found have helped me to learn that feeling and to be able to trust that feeling eventually through my hips. But getting those hips down was such, it was an, it was a hard concept for me to understand. I was always myself more of a strength runner. I was gulping more ground and my RPMs, I think it is important to at least touch on this. My RPMs were always lower than most. And some of that is just my anthropometry. It is the way that my body works. And I'm not going to completely abandon that. Like you've said before, we're trying to restore the best version of your running, how you ran when you were a kid in grade school. Get that back as much as possible by doing these type of drills. Because way back then, you were doing those things more, right, without even thinking about it. But then uh, a lot of disruptions, a lot of things in life that changes those responses and those things. And I was looking at my RPMs the other day. I'm operating at about six RPMs higher than I used to at the same pace. And of course, so many variables, pacing is important. How fast are we running at the time uh, compared to how many RPMs, how many steps per minute right, are we getting? But for me, I know at those paces, I am becoming more and more efficient. I feel better and better. But that is not something that I was able to achieve overnight. For sure, three months of really focusing on run form over the winter helped me a lot. But it was a graduated response. I didn't push for my RPMs to go up in a day. They just, they just followed. And I now am feeling that without having to think about it. 
So I just wanted to point that out that even for somebody like me now, I'm at about 186 in my steps per minute, right? Um, and I'm never going to- At, at what um, At what intensity? Yeah, that's when I'm running at six minute pace. Okay, okay. So that so that's that's not bad for for somebody of your length and your leg length. Right. It's interesting how we talk about these things, right? I'm always fascinated when I watch uh, CrossFit videos and I watch those athletes that are so tremendously strong and so tremendously conditioned. Even they do a, they do a lot of explosive stuff. When they run, they are extremely inefficient, right? So it's a question of if you've got a hammer, you're looking for nails. If you've got a saw, you're looking for a piece of wood, right? And so I often say to athletes that have uh, strength anomaly or, or that have uh, form, run form anomalies, right, and things that they could get better at, I say to them that their, their gift and their curse is they are overcoming it with strength or they're overcoming it with power. And what are they sacrificing? Economy, right? And so it's hard to tell somebody that's running sub 30 off the bike that you could improve your run form. They're going, well, you know, I'm one of the best that there already is. Yeah, but you could be even better, you know, and that's why I like athletes to train to not only to the demands of competition, but train to optimize what they're capable of. Because some someday if you're an Uber swimmer, like just happened in this race in, in Spain, right? If you're an Uber swimmer, at some point in time, uh, you're going to have a swim and you're not going to get away, you know, and now you're suddenly going to have to rely on your bike or you're going to have to rely on your run, right? And you are now under pressure. But if you'd optimize that, you've created further capacity for improvement. And I think that's that's something important to to look at is is that if you are well conditioned, I mean, I was standing in in and near the stadium in Tucson the other day, and I was watching you run to go and fetch something. All right, and I said, oh, I've got to remember to talk to Matt about he's flexing his knees too much through mid stance. He's scuttling, you know. And you had something else on your mind and. And you, you weren't conscious of how you were running. It was a perfect time for me to observe because you're running pretty quickly because you're running over a short distance. I said, oh, I've got some stuff we can do with Matt uh, because he's overutilizing his his hip strength. Yeah. You know, he doesn't need to use his hips as much as he's doing right now. You know, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's an important point, too, because although I know I've gotten better, I still know I have a long ways to go. So even with my run form drills. I know the next three months it's going to get even better, right? But I've I've improved and I've optimized compared to where I was at before. But I I still have a long ways to go, and so that's why these drills will always be a part of my process. Because I even when it comes to the last one, two, three percent, which I'm still well away from, I know it's still worth it even then. And as we age, we want to restore as much as we can, we want to save ourselves from losing our capacities or our range of motion. And by doing these type of things, we're actually, I think of it as main gaining, right? We're, we're maintaining what we have uh, and we're even just gaining a little bit at a time. And I think that's the best approach, whether it be for training or nutrition or, or, or whatever, right? It's yeah, yeah. those uh, sort of incremental uh, micro steps that we can make instead of trying to make big leaps going back to the cadence conversation somebody trying to get in a higher cadence all at once because they're told that they should have a, a higher cadence based off of some number that they read right versus just finding the best cadence for you and and finding what's really optimal there because we are all different there and i think it would be fun just maybe to close off with the blue conversation about blue amnesia or different things that we've heard, because I think that it's been such a hot topic for runners over the years. Oh, it's your, your glutes. Your glutes aren't strong enough. Your glutes aren't strong enough. You need to do more work. And, and those positions that we've talked about before getting into athletic anchors, where I prefer trying to do work from the ground up and really get those dots connected. Because in my experience, I have not found that glutes are weak. We can always get stronger. But it's more about, are we connecting the dots? Are those glutes firing when they should be? And we're out of position, that's not going to happen, right? So if our hips are not in good position, then we're not going to be able to really use those glutes the way that we want to. So 
you know, something as simple as getting on the ground, doing a glute bridge, feeling your glutes fire up, you know, that's great. That's fantastic. You can feel your glutes working. Okay. So I don't really believe in glute amnesia and I don't believe that most people have truly weak glutes at all. Really. It's, it's more about, um, let's learn that neuromuscular facilitation, that neuromuscular re-education to connect what we have. And, you know, again, that's why I think it's so important to start with the drills we start with. And then as you get further down your process to success here, if you will, then you can start to even look at, okay, I could get my glutes stronger. They're firing well, but now, yeah, I could work on getting them stronger. And then here's specific progressions for that. I just think that people jump to that right away. And that strength that they gain in their glutes doesn't necessarily translate for their skill set. It's not transferable yet. So until we do that, we're not, we're doing all this hard work, lifting more weight, but we're not necessarily even getting the benefits of that because we didn't start with that neuromuscular, that, that re-education uh, concept that I talked about here. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll use a pendolism here as well. And my pendolism is I'll end with this, right? So out of what you've just said, finishing off that conversation is realizing that utilizing your pelvis correctly is a symphonic conversation. It's not a solo conversation, right? There's a hell of a lot that comes into play with the glutes. For example, spinal awareness. I find that when I'm working with an athlete to get their pelvic set optimized, I'm spending a lot of time actually on their, on their torso. You know, because your your pelvis responds to where your torso is, right? So if you if you do that, you know, set it and forget it. You do that micro set. You internally rotate that rib cage. You get that cyphoid process or that arrowhead coming in and down, right? The pelvis responds to that, so it's easier for people to control their chest. I think people can also understand if they increase their spinal awareness, right? So they start being able to move their lumbar spine more, even more crucially, because people lose that so easily, learning how to use their thoracic spine and their cervic spi cervical spine, then the pelvis also reacts to that and gets aligned, right? Because as we've said before, if you contract those glutes while you run, because you're trying to contract those glutes, it's fatal, okay? Because you're just posteriorly rotating the pelvis. You can't release your hip flexors. You can't extend. So that, that becomes very, very important. And you kept saying, the way that we want our hips to move. I love that because, you know, this this ancient, ridiculous, incorrect thing, your glutes aren't firing. Well, they're not firing because they can't fire. They're not firing because your pelvis is not in the right position. And your pelvis is not in the right position for a multiplicity of reasons. But your glutes are just fine because you wouldn't be able to walk if your glutes didn't fire. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, um, yeah, I I I'm glad you brought up that whole thing. It seems like every week we have a uh, you know, a run form myth yeah. that, that we expose, you know, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, it, I knew this podcast is a touch longer than our others, but this is probably the more complex conversation we had to have today. And I think people can get a lot out of it to, to have a visual. I always like visuals, but I had always thought about rooting the glutes. And if you're a tree and are those glutes actually rooted down below and above right? Like branches. And, and if you have that main anti-gravity muscle, your glutes and your other anti-gravity muscle, your, your back, right? Your lats, if they're working together, then you're really rooted and you're so strong. And from there, there's, there's really the longevity conversation, the, the, the ability to be able to keep making more and more progress. That's all there. And just know that's how your body was built and you have those roots already there. So it's just about uh, establishing those connections and looking both below and above. And how are those roots rooted for your glutes? Yeah. Yeah, we are going along and I used my pendolism, but then I think, okay, we didn't really talk about how you ground the pelvis with, with a musculature that can only pull, right? So you're thinking, okay, I want to push down the right side of my pelvis, right? But I've got this wet noodle on top of it. You've got to think like hinges, right? So the pelvis can do too much of this. It can do too much of this, right? And then there's also the various little movements that when it can get slightly displaced. But for people to understand, to push this muscle down can only be pulling 
on glutes and hamstrings and, and stuff like that. But there's also the pivot point, which is the spine, that muscles on this side can pull and in so doing push this down. Maybe you can have a closing word about how the QL plays a role in doing that and how those internal muscles play a role in pushing that side of the pelvis down from the other side through pulling. Yeah. You know, because I know a lot of anatomists don't like the word push at all, but but people can push, but they push through pulling. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, the the QL you made mentioned, uh, that's your quadratus lumborum, and it's your hip hiker. So if you feel on the side of your hip and you you uh, activate that hip hiker, you'll feel it contract, right? So just hike your hip, you'll feel that muscle contract. Now, when they are working independently, that's what they do, right? They'll, they'll hike your hip. When they're working together, they'll help to erect the spine. And so this is a perfect way to say, listen to our next episode, because we are going to be talking quite a bit about, again, why it does matter how that left hip is working with the right shoulder and vice versa, and and why it's not just one area, right? So we're, we're going to talk a lot more next time about how that dynamic trunk control does work with better compact positions using the uh, that contralateral chain, if you will, using that windup throughout your entire body so you do have the right wrist working with the left ankle. And, and uh, that's all exciting information, I think, and this is why you should listen next time. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much. You said this was one of our longer ones. I got that it was like maybe 15, 20 minutes long because I so enjoy this conversation because I'm even my own thinking, I'm going, ah, oh, is that is that right? That's what I'm seeing. Let, let me, Matt's just said something. Let me add that to my conversation. You know? Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, no, thanks for listening again. And uh, we will talk to you guys next time. Until then, enjoy your next run. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.